Hello, you are listening to the Higher Intelligence Podcast presented by My Working Soul. My name is Kareen and I'm your host and I'm so excited to welcome you to the Higher Intelligence first episode. The first thing I want to do is personally thank all of the amazing guests that agreed to be on the show. I can't wait for all of you to get a chance to experience the amazing conversations that we've collected so far. I guarantee you, you are going to learn, you're going to laugh, and you're going to have a great time. Second, of course, I definitely want to thank the entire My Working Soul team because without them, this podcast would not have been possible. And I absolutely want to give a special shout out to our producer, Josh Walsh, who is the king of content and the person who has been the champion laugh editor, the person who has definitely uh, been a huge part of pulling this off. So thank you, Josh, for everything you've done to make this a possibility. And finally, I want to thank you, the listener, uh, for joining this conversation A podcast is really fun to make, but it doesn't really make a difference if nobody listens to it. So again, I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen today. And I want to make sure that before we jump into this episode, we talk about what the podcast is all about. The goal of this podcast is to engage with humans, with workers from all walks of life so that we can learn, understand, and respect each other and also so we can learn, understand, and respect the different types of work that all of us do. On this show, we address wisdom at work and what that's supposed to mean. Stay tuned for the end where we'll share a piece of higher intelligence, our success takeaways for applying the discussion in an innovative human resources and people context. Dr. Kevin Mays is the founder, owner, and CEO of Mays Leadership, a consulting firm that helps teams overcome common dysfunction. Renowned as a speaker, consultant, and coach, Dr. Mays holds a doctorate in educational leadership from the University of Montana and graduate degrees in organizational leadership and psychology. Our discussion focused on the work we all do as people to be better and create an enlightened culture where human beings thrive. Together, we analyze what it really means to be wise at work. In our conversation, I was interested to learn about Dr. May's impact with young people. He once led an initiative called Mark to the Mountain, where local teens placed the world's largest red ribbon on the mountain overlooking the city to showcase their commitment to healthy lifestyles. His experience working in the mental health space and working with a variety of populations to address mental health and substance abuse is not only important, it's an absolute inspiration. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kevin Mays. Dr. Kevin, nice to have you here. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's great to talk to you, Corey. I am super excited to have our audience learn a little bit more about you and the impact you're making for organizations and for individuals. Can you start off by just telling us a little bit more about May's leadership? Uh, Sure. We're a consulting firm. We help businesses become better uh, in a nutshell. You know, many, many years ago, I worked more in the mental health space and recognized how much suffering we as humans create for ourselves. And really, I was on a self-awareness journey. In fact, I'm kind of a self-awareness junkie, was on a, on a pathway to help understand what makes me tick and then to be able to help others be better. And that has evolved into my leadership development practice, which I've been doing for over two decades now helping leaders become better, helping teams function at a higher level with more cohesion, collaboration, uh, more uh, effective communication, and help create enlightened culture. 
for me, that's the apex of it all, helping organizations create environments where people thrive. And that's what we do at, at Maze Leadership is helping uh, individuals create environments where people thrive. I want to also let our audience know that when Dr. Kevin Mays talks about thriving cultures, it's more than lip service. There's there's a crowded space sometimes in our ecosystem, our world in terms of coaches and different leadership resources. But one of the things that really stands out about May's leadership as a whole to me personally is number one, the incredible qualifications, both experiential and academic that May's leadership carries. But also if you if you go to Dr. Kevin May's LinkedIn profile and you scroll down a little bit, you may notice that he spent a considerable amount of time working with the youth. And that's something that's impactful to me. I, I consider myself a youth, but I'm on the tail end of it. So uh, Dr. Kevin Kevin, on that note, I'd love to just highlight some of the things in your experience that people don't maybe hear about or know about on face value. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your work with youth and leadership and also some of those more, I'll call them undiscovered aspects of your background that make you intensely qualified for what you do now with organizations? Well, I love what you said. You're a, you're a youth. You said on the tail end. I don't know about that. I'm a youth. <laughs> I'll always be. I try to retain that timelessness, right, that we have as kids. We get less connected and attached to our ideas about who we think we need to be. It's like that ego-free state when we're young that's just open, creative, and infinite abundance is available to us at those times. And something happens. We, we get robbed. We rob ourselves of that. As we mature in age and become attached to our convictions about what we believe, and sometimes that we can misguide ourselves because it's based on our, our beliefs are based on our experiences, which aren't absolute truth. It's just our experiences that form our beliefs. So I love the question. Uh, in the past, working with youth, one of my favorite things was outdoor wilderness adventure, taking urban youth into the Rocky Mountains and folks who were strong, tough individuals, leaders who didn't have a lot of resources, and you cast them into a completely different, all-natural environment. It's funny to watch them go from hardened, adult-acting youth into suddenly these vulnerable children who are now in the Rocky Mountains trying to figure out how to survive. It's just phenomenal to see how when we pull ourselves out of that environment, there's a lot more vulnerability under the surface often. And all our bravado can disappear. And then suddenly we're like faced with the real person. And that can be the thing that we experience as youth. But I see the same thing with the executives I work with today. There's an environment they have around them and they learn to play a certain role. But underneath that, when you take them out of that environment, is that same vulnerable youth inside who's trying to figure out how to get their attention needs met, how to be successful, how to help others be better, all the complexities that we as adults try to manage. Uh, the truth is underneath it all, we still are that five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old inside. Yes, we've discussed how some of the mentalities and modes of thinking at the executive level, uh, when you start from that founder journey, and now you're scaling and you're bringing on more people and the dynamics uh, in your work environment are changing. How does that play into leadership style and leadership orientation? Knowing, of course, that we all seek, I hope, to retain that childlike innocence and wonder when approaching things. But when I say that term, Peter Pan syndrome, I think it has a, a different connotation. Is that right? <laughs> well, well, say more. So I'm, I'm really intrigued by what, what, what you are saying. Say a little more. So my idea of Peter Pan syndrome, and I'm not qualified to to judge what that term means. I think it's a, I, I dare say it's a popular term. I, I hear it a lot colloquially in culture when they say, oh, that person has Peter Pan syndrome. And in my experience, I've found that that term seems to be applied more readily to men. However, it's funny, I think, when I hear the definition, which seems to connote immaturity or a lack of willingness to grow up, I, I try to be very self-critical and I think, well, 
that kind of sounds like me. And it's interesting because we could look at this positively, right? The sense of wonder at the world and, and in a work context, approaching everyone in a fashion that is equal, treating everyone the same in the sense that you should treat people how you want to be treated. That's usually the golden rule I subscribe to. But also thinking that, okay, what if that's just my belief, alluding to what you were speaking about earlier in terms of maybe I'm not doing enough to be considerate. Maybe I need to be more considerate. Maybe I maybe I have not childlike wonder, but Peter Pan syndrome. And I, I'm the type of human being, I always seek to empower other people through compassion and empathy and understanding, especially through the venue of communication, which is a value that you and I share. That's usually where I feel sometimes at a crossroads, right? And I'm thinking, okay, Am I in the Peter Pan syndrome mode or am I in the childlike wonder mode? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love something you said about treating people the way they, the way, you know, treating others the way I want to be treated, the golden rule. And I, I feel like that, you said, maybe that's just a belief. And in my mind, I love that, ex- that you gave that example, because in my mind, it absolutely is. And it ties back to our leadership style. My leadership style is nothing more than my personality playing itself out. And I like to treat others the way I like to be treated. But there's the blind spot because you don't want to be treated the way I want to be treated. You want to be treated the way you want to be treated. And so I love it. For me, there's the platinum rule is treat others the way they want to be treated. But that requires you to do some a some soul searching, first of all, to let go of your own beliefs and concepts about how things should be, how I should be. You know, the hard the hardest thing is we tend to. You know, this naive realism, you know, we have this projection, we believe our view is the view. And so therefore, if I just treat everybody the way I want to be treated, because that's the right way, because that's the way I want to be treated. Well, hold on. everybody's different. We, you know, we are as diverse as we are numbers. You know, we have billions of people on the planet and there's that many different perspectives. How do you get into others' mindset and into their space, into their psyche to really help them? Uh, when you're in, engaging with them and communicate to help be with them in a way that they want, as opposed to the way that I want. For me, that's the million dollar work. That's the power and leadership that I help executives do is try to get out of their own way, right? It's so easy. We see the world so clearly and we see ourselves so miserably. I mean, we don't see ourselves very clearly. That's just my experience over and over and over. It's the hardest thing to see is the self because we're looking That's the vantage point. We're looking out from within and it's hard to see the place that we're looking out from, right? We don't see our own lens. How do you take that lens off and begin to really understand and evaluate your own bias? My bias, your bias, we've all got it. And we project it out, even though it's well-meaning, right? Treating others the way I would like to be treated. Hmm. Sometimes that becomes my my biggest uh, obstacle to being effective, because I like to be kind and like to be compassionate and give people the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes what people want and need isn't that at all. Sometimes they need disciplines. And then sometimes they need a swift kick in the pants and that works and it works for them. Regardless of how I mm. feel about it, right? doesn't matter if I like it or not. My job as a leader is to help others be better, not to do the thing that I like. That's what at May's leadership we refer to as a blind spot. And thank you. Thank you. You teed me up perfectly to talk about blind spots. And it's intriguing using the example that we're operating in, which is, you know, whoever thought that, you know, quote unquote, kindness, empathy, and compassion could be a blind spot. But there are real implications for not being able to identify that even the most quote unquote universally positive things can to to some listening ears be seen as toxic. And that that steps us into another arena of conversation, which I'd love your insight on. In a world and an ecosystem that we're living in where there's a information overload. Um, and that's generally speaking not something that's negative. Um, it's a really beautiful thing that we've been able to collate so much data in a centralized location like the internet. It's beautiful that you and I can be talking right now. And yet knowing that all of those infinite connection points also contain infinite data points and possibilities for misinterpretation, uh, that, that's a lot of pressure. 
how can one mitigate that knowing that of course we want to create open communication but the fear of hurting someone's feelings might result in in no communication at all you know it's fantastic i had this conversation just earlier today with the leader who was telling the same story the individual like many of us want to be pleasing, we want to be liked, we want to be likable. And the downside was accountability wasn't being created. They always had the benefit of the doubt and allowed others to just make their decisions and trusted in them. But then from the perspective of the other person, they felt like they weren't given the guidance they needed. And what they wanted and needed was somebody to create a hard deadline to say, here's what you said you were going to do. What's the status? Sometimes individuals need that leadership isn't about being comfortable. It's about getting the results you want, regardless of how it feels. And it's great. You can say this, right? While we're comfortable in our little spaces and this, on this you know, dialogue, the difficulty is when you actually have to put it to practice. When you're faced with an employee who you keep waiting for them to take ownership and they don't. And you keep trying to coach them and, and push them along, saying the nice things, but it doesn't get you where you want to go. Sometimes I've seen it to this individual earlier today, made a commitment. They're going to sit down and have a real heart to heart and lay it all on the table. Because sometimes if it's uncomfortable for me, then I don't say that thing that needs to be said. And instead, I talk around it because of my discomfort, not about what the situation needs. And it's funny, I've seen this done in the past where individuals are driven by their own success scripts, right? Like my success script I learned when I was a kid to be pleasing, to be responsible, to be hardworking. And all of these drive what I do as a leader. It becomes my leadership style, really just my personality playing itself out. And what we're really, in my mind, the biggest hurdle to jump is to move from leadership strategies dictating what we do, excuse me, leadership style dictating what we do to truly being strategic, to being intentional, to doing the thing that gets the results, regardless of the sensations in our body, the feeling that arises up or the narrative in our head, to know and be dialed in with what our vision is, what's the vision of the organization, what are the values I live by, what are the values of the organization, and move relentlessly that direction, even if it doesn't feel good. We've all been there. We've all been there. Most of our listeners right now, they might be familiar with the trait theory of leadership in terms of analyzing great leaders. We live in a compare me, I'll call it a compare me type of society where it's like, I want to be like figure X. So I want, I'm going to emulate the behavioral traits of leader X so I can lead like leader X. And yet there are all those circumstances that change around us and it becomes situational. And it's interesting, we've seen in so many different leadership texts, at least I have, this like very neat delineation of leadership strategies and theories. And everyone tends to get to the apex of what you're saying in terms of understanding, I'm going to borrow your words here, the difference between personalization and purpose, which is key to understanding why are you in this position as a leader? What is your purpose? And it's it's beautiful and, and quite fun, actually, to talk about it on a theoretical level. But as you alluded to, it's a different thing when there's a human on the other side. And I'd like to relate to you on one level because on one hand, we're pointing out the huge need to embed coaching at every level of an organization. It's not just a, a want, it's an absolute must have and it's a need. But how do you mitigate the reality that the success measurement of coaching is not always what people expect? Sometimes people hear, oh, we'll bring, you know, consultant X or coach for X, Y, and Z in, and it's going to result in happy human beings. And sometimes it doesn't. How do you, how do you mitigate that? Sometimes it doesn't. Is it about being happy? What is this happiness obsession that we have? Being happy. But I think when you talk about being happy, it's like such a product of our society that we're, we're so obsessed with this notion of happiness. But happiness is really, in my mind, very conditional. People are happy when the outside circumstances 
go a particular way, that feed their self-concept, that feed their worldview, that feed all of the beliefs they've created for themselves over the course of their lifetime. So when we live in a world that validates our perspective, oh, we're happy. But that's that's just conditional. That's not true happiness. In my mind, true happiness is a deeper level of contentment that we can find within us regardless of what's happening around us. And some of the best examples come out of uh, people who have survived concentration camps or horrific experiences who found that resolve within themselves when they stripped away all their beliefs and just settled into their own alive humanity, their own spiritual center. That is happiness that is not contingent on organizations behaving a certain way. But here's the thing in my mind, that when individuals strip away all these beliefs that we're attached to and really open the door to our own vitality, we have more than to offer in our relationships. We have more to offer as a leader. We tend to lead with compassion. We lead with understanding. And we also have the ability to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable when we need to be. Most humans, though, what we're hedonistic. So we move towards what feels good and away from what doesn't feel good. And that means like things like guilt or shame or fear or hurt we move away from. Ah, oh, I feel guilty if I say the thing he doesn't want to hear. So I tend to not say that thing, even though as a as a leader, that's my job. So we really undermine ourselves in the, the programming that we do, right? I think of it like our software. We come into the world, we don't have software. And based on our experiences, we form that software. That software allows us to thrive and survive in the first couple of years of our life. And the reality is, as we form that software, our brain follow suit and we form neural connections that perpetuate that form of thinking that we developed early on in our lives. So when we talk about leadership style being nothing more than our personality, these patterns you developed in your thinking when you were three and five and 10 years old are now in many ways in charge. That's not free will. That's not the highest level of leadership. That's just us playing out a pattern in which when we find things that support our self-concept and our worldview, we feel good, we move towards that. When things don't, we feel bad, we move away from it. In many ways, we're just, we're like robots. How do you cut through that? That's leadership, right? That's the good stuff. Wow, fascinating. And I really, I'm a solutions-oriented human being. And so I really want to know what your take is at the organizational level and also on the individual level. Oftentimes as coaches, people that want to help, and help is a, a bit of an arbitrary word, but we'll use it anyway. People we want to connect with. Oftentimes we're catching up, we're, we're being picked up on the train and it's like stop 33 and they've already been going through these software programming patterns for the perpetuity of their existence, whether it's their whole life as an individual or on an organizational level. I mean, they're already at headcount 150 and they've been doing this now uh, for a while. And so how do you approach either that person or that organization or the stakeholder in the organization? Where do you, where do you even start? Because you identify that there's there's a challenge, but so often, especially when you're talking on the organizational level, there's the shifting of behavior patterns and it correlates with the shifting of employees that stay and leave and come and all of those dynamics, whether it's the customers or the actual team, does that support this progressive movement towards better change, more understanding, or is it something like, should we all just give up <laughs> if we yeah. didn't start off that way? <laughs> well, for me, it's interesting because you said the behaviors, that's something interesting. The behavior patterns change based on, you know, the employees coming and going. And I, I think it's even bigger than that. I think the behavior patterns vary based on the leadership. Who is at the top of the totem pole? That individual's behavior and thinking get amplified throughout the organization. They set the tone. They create the culture. So people behave differently at work than they do at church than they do at school, than they do with their kids, than they do when they're going out Friday night. We There's different cultures that are unsaid, that get created based on this kind of unspoken norm. So we know we go to work, there's a certain type of behavior that's allowed and acceptable. It starts with 
how the leaders, the people at the top of the food chain, how they behave. There's a a quality I call executive amplitude. Everything that they say and do gets amplified across the organization. It sets the stage for what's acceptable, what's allowable, and the type of culture. So the interesting thing is I find so often these individuals, when I start to work with them, their concern is the organization is having problems and they don't see the connection between themselves and the organization. And I wholeheartedly know that before you can lead anybody else, before you can create a high performance uh, team, before you can create an enlightened culture, the thing you must do is lead yourself. You have to know how to lead yourself. And that starts with developing presence, an ability to harness your attention into the here and now moment, not get caught up in all your ideas about what might happen. And not get drawn into the fantasy of our minds about what did happen, right? All these fantasies we create, we miss this moment. And this moment is the only window for awareness. Not when we're thinking about what somebody said and then generating all the emotion that goes with it. Or when we're creating anticipation and all the emotion that goes with that, the fear about the next thing or the excitement. Again, all stuff conditional, like the happiness we talked about earlier. How do you get through all that conditional experience and just allow, for me, that's the training, right? To be able to practice that ability to be present, to own your attention. And then from that place of here and now presence, then to move your awareness and your, uh, to move your attention into your body and to become aware of what's going on in a physical level, to notice the patterns in your thinking, to notice what's happening emotionally. In that moment, the awareness is a huge first step. Then you're in a position to actually choose. Most of us, though, and I get caught in all the time in reactive patterns that are just playing themselves out. I'm not making a choice. I'm just playing out a pattern. And I'm making myself right in the situation. I'm good at being right. I'm not necessarily good at getting the results I want, but man, I can be defensive and I can use my language and words to prove that I'm right. It's really just my five-year-old taking over, throwing a tantrum, making myself look right because it's a defensive strategy, right? It's the fight or flight. I love this. You know, we, uh, the reason we go into fight or flight is what? Survival. But now our survival is not at stake. Now it's survival of our ego. When our ego is at, uh, under threat, we go into fight or flight and it looks like language. It looks like words. It looks like things that we say when we become defensive, when we blame others, when we make excuses, when we're in denial. It's all defensive strategies to protect our ego, not the path of an enlightened leader. Well, I might say it's, it probably is on the path because <laughs> I don't know if enlightened leaders exist. It's more of a pathway than a destination, right? Yes. And um, what I'm really thrilled about, and I, I ultimately can't resist, so I'm going to insert it. There's so many beautiful connections to yogic philosophy in, in what you mentioned. So filtering through that physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual body, that's a lot of the work that I, I hope to achieve in myself and in others through yoga practice. And I had a, I had a friend tell me once, <laughs> I had a friend tell me once that I should get into running. And this person told me that it might be helpful for my sense of agency. And I can make a clear connection on a, on a physical level of, okay, that makes sense, right? So you're running like on this physical plane and perhaps that transfers over to the intellectual side of like, I, I get to depart from the stressor. So I, I'm able to understand that link and that advice. The challenge for me is that I absolutely hate running. I get out of breath, like getting out of breath is just not always my groove. I like to feel fit and challenged, but there's something about it that reminds me of my 12-year-old self that had to run that 10-minute mile and I ran it, <laughs> but I thought I never I never want to do this again. And so <laughs> when, when I discovered yoga, it was an interesting lesson for me because I I did get out of breath um all the time actually. And I found so much more, I'll call them ego collisions in that practice because I couldn't actually leave. I had to stay there. And it was physically, I would say for me personally, just as challenging as running a mile. And the most challenging aspect of it was the emotional and spiritual component of needing to 
be intentional about my movements and and how I was arranging my body to prevent injury, but also being forced to divorce from my ego in terms of I don't like the way this pose looks in my body. This doesn't look like how it does on Instagram or on the television screen. I don't feel like I'm doing it right. And um, that continuous dialogue with the self is part of what makes coaching so essential for the self as you've beautifully laid out masterfully. But we can't understate the value of having a guide that can come in with a bird's eye view and help guide us on our individual paths. And I, I do that, you know, in my yoga practice with my mentors. And I, I think of you as the uh, a bit of a yoga teacher for the mind in, in a sense. You think about running. If you wanted to be an Olympic level runner, if you decided, made that commitment, you would not do it alone, right? You wouldn't do it without help. It's amazing to me that in athletes, of course you have a coach. You wouldn't imagine, a, I hate to say Detroit Lions without a coach, you might. Uh, you wouldn't imagine a good team without a coach. Yet so many organizations and, and leaders trying to become their best don't have somebody to be able to provide that kind of mirror reflection and a structure to understand how they do what they do so they can get better. The hard thing is being caught in this trap of knowing, hey, I made it here. I'm at the top. I must be great. Let me keep doing more of that thing. And it has a limited, uh, a limited return. We can't grow. We can't expand our vision as effectively as if we have somebody objective who is really shining the light back on us. Mm, yes. And we could even, we could even draw that out a little bit more and say, from a leadership perspective, if I had the same attitude about running and I produce running shoes. That could start to be interesting. And and again, I'm not mandated just because I'm leading a running shoes company to love running, but there's probably a huge perspective that I'm missing out on. And you know, that's why, um, and this will be my my final yoga comment maybe for the day, but for me, my choice to practice vinyasa yoga as a style of practice, one could even say a leadership style if we want to make that analogy, because I am cognizant of my, I don't want to call it a handicap, but I'm cognizant of my personality. That's what I'll say. And I know that I want to have ingrained patterns. And so by really consciously choosing a moving style that requires me to engage my muscles. It engages with a lot of those uh, same same disciplines that running requires, that Pilates requires. And so I needed to call it yoga <laughs> to get myself over the hump of, I don't like being out of breath, even though I ended up entering the same space. So it was this linguistic trick that I employed. And I'm okay with admitting, yeah, I'm getting some cardio in this. But I just needed to reframe it for myself in a way that could get me to that place of non-judgment where I could defeat my ego in that realm. Reframing is huge. It's one of the most powerful, powerful techniques. And I think the reason my experience is we find so much, we, the reason we suffer, we're attached to our framework. The reason leaders fail, they're attached to their framework. Can you reframe? I was on the phone earlier with somebody who was very hardened. Uh, she, a woman in a, in a man's world who learned to just be very direct, very directive, very straight shooting. And it's great. It works most of the time. But now she had one individual she was struggling with, and he was wired differently than most of the people in the organization. And that technique wasn't working for her. Well, she doubled down on what she had done uh, on her leadership style. Again, it's like I'm in a foreign country in a restaurant asking for food and they don't understand me. So I just say it slower and louder instead of articulating in the way they might hear. She was just doing more of the same thing and it wasn't getting her any result. And it was cool when she started to, to reframe and recognize, oh, wait a minute, the way I'm looking at this is not helpful. It's not that he's an idiot and I need to slow down and be louder. I need to change and start to get in his mind. What's going on for this individual? What if you could really be so egoless that you could insert yourself into the mind and the condition of the other individual to really understand their experience in that moment? It's powerful when you can do that. Then you start to see how they're looking at the world. 
I've seen too many times leaders are just frustrated and exhausted and they keep beating their head against the wall and they keep doing more of the same thing. They can't figure out why they, they don't get the result, why everybody else is a knucklehead. <laughs> the answer is often to turn back and look deeply at yourself and figure out what it is that you're bringing to that situation that is contributing to the dynamic that's playing itself out. Mm, yes. And, you know, this, I, I'm going to, uh, dangerously veer going off topic and saying this, but I can't help it because so many connection points when when we talk. There was a uh, recording I was listening to about two weeks ago. It's one of my favorite recordings from Ram Das, And it was one of his uh, sessions. And for those of you who don't know, Ram Das is a great person and I'm not going to say anything further. Just look him up. But uh, he was speaking in a setting where where different people, some of his followers, one might say in a social media landscape, some of his followers were asking him questions about the nature of reality. And there was one individual that stood up and it was a very affecting plea to Ram Das, where she was talking about her heartache because she really wanted to be loved. That's how she put it. She said, I really want to be loved. And for, for whatever reason, no matter what I do, no matter how kind I am, no matter how much I, I try to be what other people you know, would love, I feel that this is evading me. I connect that to what you were saying because it's that same idea of reflection because Ram Dass's response was that, wow, isn't it painful that the very things that we want the most seem to be continuously out of reach. And that connects to that happiness concept in terms of when when will we be happy? Well, maybe it's when we choose. So that futility of that woman uh, talking about the love that she could not have, it's an echo of the heartbreak of organizations that are broken. And it's not just the emotional component. I mean, it's from a fiscal perspective the millions and billions of dollars that are just flying out the window because there are no practical tools of communication to start to heal the divide and bring us together. And so on that note of communication, Dr. Kevin Mays, how do you operationalize communication in in these heartfelt situations that have such high stakes, especially in the business arena? Well, the thing I love is being able to, A, help people have a tool to be able to pull back the veneer of their own personality and to be honest with themselves and have a structure and a language set around that. So it's not just a wild abyss, but there's some order and organization to how their mind is working. Some real subtle nuances, but once you start to understand that basic structure And this is a structure that goes back thousands of years, right? For people who have been sitting and studying their minds for a long time, there's some basic structural elements that still are never go out of style. So when folks have that kind of common, now I put it in business language, right? The same kind of thing that's been around forever, but now can we put it and apply it to business? And not only within myself as a leader, but now if all the leaders start to have that kind of deep insight and language around how their mind works, and then can start to share with each other in an open dialogue way. It's amazing to see. It's like that hardened level of of veneer that is the ego starts to get pulled away. And you have people who are just standing with each other, not, not just together. You know, so many people, executives I see more than ever, they, they have on their face like they have it all together. But underneath, they're filled with angst and fear and stress. But on the surface, they're all together. So they walk around alone together in many ways. They're all completely alone, acting like they have it all together, but inside they're stressed out. And when you start to peel that back and have people have an authentic, genuine, deep, heartfelt connection with each other, it changes everything. From my perspective, where I stand, leadership is the most spiritual practice. Because you must continually drink from your own well. You must continually see past your reactivity. You must manage your own emotion consistently and watch it and understand that everything that arises within you is you. And then to be able to approach others in an open way, even when they might be the source of your frustration. Maybe they're the source of your anger or your hurt or whatever the emotion is. 
to be able to step into the middle of that flame and be present with another individual, even though you've got a whole narrative constructed in your head around how they're wrong and you're right. Be able to cut through that and truly be with another person in a way that makes them better. That's powerful work. Not easy work, powerful work. It's worthy work uh, with purpose. (laughs) Absolutely. And again, I can't help but to reference another great thinker, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, Alan Watts. And I listen to his recordings often as well. And there's a recording in which he's referencing the ego and he just goes, watch it, watch it, watch it (laughs) for about a minute. And it's like you feel even the tension imbued in those words, watch it. I'm going, watch what, watch what? And it's watch, watch your thoughts. And in the midst of that activity of watching, constantly looking for blind spots, one might say, it's interesting the sight that you receive. And, and that is truly powerful. And that's a beautiful tee up to one of our most important questions today and in the world, Dr. Mays, which is, what would you say is the greatest global leadership challenge of the 21st century? In our lives, I feel like we are trained and conditioned to master the world around us. Yet there's not a lot of, especially in institutionalized in our systems, our education systems, there's not a lot given to helping individual manage and master the world within. And I think for me, it's that the ability of individuals to not be reactive, but to be conscious and intentional. That's the leadership challenge. When individuals strip past the, their own attachment to their beliefs, and I'm not saying being not have beliefs, but I see bo- our attachment to our beliefs creates so much of the angst and the stress and all of the issues that we we find. I think they can all be traced back to a lack of complete openness, a lack of complete insight into ourselves, into our how our mind is working. Uh, and again, so we end up making ourselves right, you know, and there's there's bias that we create based on distance. So people, the further away, we're more likely to make wrong. The big evil folks across the ocean, and we are the ones who are the enlightened ones. And they do the same thing back. And it really creates a lot of division. The division starts in our own mind, though. That's the thing, I think. If, if we can get good leaders to be able to peel back their own layers and to actually develop insight, to develop wisdom, that is the work. Nothing is more powerful than wisdom. And wisdom isn't just words in a book. Wisdom isn't knowledge. Wisdom isn't even just experience. Wisdom is a transcendent quality where you can really step into this timeless part of who we are, right? This energy within us that makes our heart beat, the same energy that keeps our blood circulating, that keeps the moon moving across the sky, that makes the tides happen, that keeps the the galaxy moving through space. There's some deeper energy that I think when leaders center into that within themselves, there's hope. And we're in a place of leaders who have wisdom. When leaders, when the opposite is, we just have this superficial set of beliefs, we have tribalism and we make ourselves right and make our group right and make the other group wrong. And we're not even close to understanding reality as it is. This is age old. I feel like it's the same leadership issue we've always had. And there have been beacons of light throughout history. And there are beacons of light out there today. There are great leaders out there today who are really attempting. The hard thing is it might not get, uh, it's not as flashy. It, it doesn't necessarily get the eye of social media because grounded people doing the right thing isn't necessarily as exciting as somebody doing something ridiculous. But it's the, it's the engine that's keeping our society evolving, I believe. And I like to believe we're evolving. Uh, whether or not we're, evolving towards something, a higher ethic is yet to be seen, <laughs> but we're definitely changing. And you know, within us, we all have this ability, this higher ethic, this higher wisdom. But I think we just, life is so comfortable with television and small screens and alcohol and drugs and sex. We lose sight of just being grounded 
and being living out of potential. Right now, the world needs it more than ever. We need good leaders. We need good, grounded, self-aware, wise leaders through all levels of government, through all our organizations. That is the answer to every problem that we have. We can solve every issue that that gets talked about if we simply started with that. Absolutely. And that's what we call here higher intelligence. But quite honestly, quite honestly, 100%. And um, my my answer to that question in terms of what is the greatest global leadership challenge of the 21st century, I think the challenge is that we might miss that opportunity that you've so beautifully outlined because we have we're in this mode of crisis like none other before. And I am going to say like none other before because we don't know what the outcomes will be. Um, That's the nature of living in the present. And part of the work that we want to do with this podcast is to create platforms where wise, wise people like you can really disseminate that information that might not always razzle dazzle us in an attention driven economy. But I, I, that's honestly the nature of why we selected the medium of a podcast because words in the audio format can sometimes communicate differently than words accompanied by image. And I say that as we look at one another right now, but even being able to impact people through different platforms and through different mediums and very decidedly moving towards this idea of long form, because I think that a lot of people in organizations right now don't give themselves room to speak and they don't give others room to speak. And that's a reflection of the same thing, which is a lack of communication. So again, if you're looking for that support, we need to continue to uplift and empower resources like May's leadership because it's the difference between moving into the new era of work and staying behind in the past and not moving into this future that we're accelerating to. Nobody has a handle on it, right? It's leadership. I go back to what I said earlier. It's that the absolute spiritual discipline. If you're going to be a leader, it requires a lot of self reflection, learning, uh, taking your own inventory, developing presence, developing awareness, being intentional, getting out of your own way, not being a hedonist, don't react to how you feel, but truly being a visionary. That you That is that you make decisions that move towards some larger vision and that it brings people along. That's powerful. And if it's, you know, I believe, you know, really quick before we end, you know, it's interesting having studied different forms of meditation for a long period of time, one of the foundations they talk about is morality. You can't have, because it's all about having a balanced, calm, open state of mind. And if you're doing something that is agitating your own mind, which is the precursor to doing something that agitates somebody else. So if you're out raising hack about your views and somebody else is wrong, you're going to have an agitated state of mind that's going to upset your own calm clarity, your own insight, your own wisdom, and being able to make sure you're carving time to be able to be in that placid state of self-possession is key. To go back to the coffers, drink from the well, make yourself the best version of yourself. To me, that is the key starting point of a great leader. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kevin Mays. We appreciate you. It's been a wonderful conversation and the first of many, uh, because this has been wonderful. Corinne, you're the best. I really appreciate this as well. Thank you. And go forth and lead. Oh, thank you, my friend. What a great conversation. Let's talk about the higher intelligence success takeaways. Let's talk about a hiring process first. When we talk about applying wisdom at work in a recruitment talent acquisition process, it's about having a plan, but it's also about knowing that that plan will sometimes and will usually need to pivot and be flexible over the lifetime of the recruitment process. The other piece of wisdom at work in a recruitment process is knowing that experience can sometimes mean bias. 
So when Dr. Kevin Mays says that leadership is a transcendent quality, it relates to higher intelligence in a recruitment process because for most of us, we want to surround ourselves with leaders who go beyond expectations and beyond knowledge to really see us and speak to us as human beings. However, having humility in what you can't know until you're 10 feet deep in the process is important. Assembling a team of wise leaders around you who can offer insight and clarity in the decision-making process is key. And having an advisor like My Working Soul to support the design of a hiring process, that can make the difference in illuminating the blind spots that all of us have. And this is why wisdom, acquiring wisdom, and understanding that sometimes our truths will only be true some of the times is so important. And it's really hard to do that without a partner. And that's why resources like My Working Soul are so important. Taking this to more of an organization level from an HR perspective, wisdom at work is also about learning to not be scarred not to develop a hardened perspective as an employer in terms of who people are and what they're going to do next. It's so easy when we're experienced leaders to believe that we know what's going to happen. But the opportunities to cultivate awareness and curiosity, to learn more, to see the glass half full, to have an optimistic perspective. It's about not becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy and about being joyful in the possibilities when you encounter human beings that are different from you. It's a beautiful thing. And as an individual, from a gratitude perspective, it's about understanding that there's no such thing as the perfect work or the perfect job. And that working with a team is a constant effort to see from another person's perspective, whether that's seeing a situation from your boss's eyes, from the CEO's eyes, or a stakeholder on the board. It's about learning to embrace the wisdom of others, even when it feels from your view that a decision doesn't make sense. There's a way to embed acceptance, safe communication, operational feedback loops, ways of constantly enhancing our own emotional intelligence. This is a part of the examination of what it means to be human, what it means to work with humans, and what it means to be wise at work. This has been Higher Intelligence, a podcast presented by My Working Soul. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.